0: Try that one, try beef wrapped in beef. But listen, that's not why I went there, albeit gaining 47 pounds in 10 days. Uh, so it would seem, is it on? Yep, should be good. It's, off. it's a facade. Um, I'll just keep using this, no problem. So basically we went there to investigate the possibility of partnering with an organization called Forward.ca, which is really an organization led by a friend of mine who was originally from Poland, okay, and so he goes to Poland three times a year to empower Christ people in Poland to do a more effective job at um, uh, interpreting scripture in such a way to communicate scripture, right, so empowering people to proclaim Jesus to their world, and so Lech uh, Bakesha has been doing this for about eight years now. And so he's looking to expand potentially into other nations and also expand his team. And so the purpose of me going there was simply to investigate an opportunity, to see what they do, how they do it. And so that was an exciting thing. We spent about four or five days at a place called Pro-M, which is a, a Christian camp in um, Zakoszeli, Poland, which means uh, village behind the church. It's a little rural village where there's this Christian camp. And for five days, we saw uh, Polish pastors, people, leaders being trained in these principles. And so it was truly an amazing experience for me. Now, what we've seen um, happen out of this is really the possibility of me getting involved in that particular ministry is pending. Two reasons. One, not that I completely understood this going in. I don't speak Polish. (laughs) And I said to Lech, hey, how about I just learn Polish? He's like, I said, how long would it take? Let's say I go all in and learn Polish. Can I do it in a year? He's like, you're crazy. Try seven. So I thought, well, that might not be the most effective way. So the actual training is in Polish, which it should be. So that became kind of an issue for me. And they're not looking to do translation in that. But if they expand into other nations like Russia, Ukraine, Estonia, uh, all those nearby, then they would have to go English. Uh, Most of them speak and understand English, but the actual training is in Polish. So that's one reason why my involvement in it is pending. The second reason it's pending is the reason he invited me in was because he was thinking about going to Myanmar in Burma. Okay, He's had an invitation to expand and do this actual training in Burma, which is a very different context, uh, as as you would obviously uh, understand. And uh, yet at the same time, uh, it was in English. And so there was an opportunity there for me to maybe be a part of bringing these things to uh, Burma. But it turns out while I was there, their team voted to focus on Poland and not go to Burma. So that kind of left that pending, at least for the time being. Now, which looked like two closed doors, two doors opened for us to prayerfully consider. And that's all I'm going to lay for you here now. That pro-M Christian camp... Throughout the whole summer, uh, they do uh, Christian ministry, evangelism, sports camps, uh, and even English school. You see, everyone wants to know and speak and understand English. And so there's an opportunity there in speaking uh, with the director of this ministry uh, to maybe consider getting involved in serving them. So I have to follow up. But he made it very clear that if you wanted to bring a team here for one week, two weeks, that there would be easy ways for us to get involved in uh, spreading the gospel through conversational English with those uh, who are in Poland. So pretty cool opportunity. The other thing that was neat is, you know, uh, we got to meet because of this training. I got to meet uh, a number of church planters, a number of pastors and some of which may potentially become Acts 29 church plants. As of right now, there is no Acts 29 church plant in the the nation of Poland. But that may change very soon. And I was very excited about that, right? That we could potentially look at a partnership, whatever that looks like right now, we don't know, with indigenous church planters in some of those cities uh, in that southern part of Poland where we were. I met one pastor by the name of Rafał, he was uh, exceptional. They, they uh, planted a church three years ago. They just launched another campus in, in another city nearby, and they've seen uh, hundreds of people get baptized, and God is really moving in that area of Poland through, uh, through this uh, church that's been planted. The other one was uh, a brother by the name of Przemek, and it took me a while to learn how to say it, as I was like, Przemek, or something like that. No, 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 Przemek. So uh, he's planting uh, a church in a city in a similar way that we have strived to plant this congregation, starting out with evangelism that leads to missional communities, right, that leads to uh, a a growing presence in a particular area. So we're getting updates from him, and I can begin to forward those updates onto you through the city. uh, And we can begin to see that, yes, it is 95% Roman Catholic Poland. You thought Syracuse was Roman Catholic at 39%. 95% Roman Catholicism in Poland. And the largest, I spent time with the pastor of the largest Baptist church in Poland. There are some Baptists there. Someone say amen. There are Baptists in Poland, okay? The largest church was about 400 people. You think about the largest Baptist church in America. Tens of thousands, right? Right? So we see God at work in a number of ways, but yet the need is great, and it's exciting to see maybe some opportunities are opening in ways that we didn't really foresee, and we'll see what God does with the other. But I want to personally thank you for your support and your prayers and your encouragement while I was there, and uh, let's just give all of these things over to the Lord, and um, worst case scenario... You know, maybe we can get a couple people to go over there and have a beef wrapped in beef. Because I think really that's what we all are really looking for in life, aren't we? Beef wrapped in beef. No, let's pray for Poland as well. And um, the church there. Polish believers that are doing all that they can to give their lives to the reaching of people with the gospel of Jesus. Can we even do that together? And then we'll dive right into to Exodus 33. Let's pray. Father... Uh, We give you praise for you are at work all over the world. When things are not going well here, so it seems, when in our own little small-mindedness we're frustrated or discouraged about this or that or what we see on the news or maybe uh, 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 just some struggles in ministry. Let us remember together that you are powerfully at work throughout the whole world, that it's that it's much bigger than what we're experiencing now. And I pray that when we see so many amazing things taking place, when when we're experiencing victory, that we would remember that there is a church striving and struggling across the world, that you are so much bigger than us, and that our privilege really is to participate with your activity that is spreading throughout the world. You are a sovereign God. And you are an active God, and we pray for Thailand, and today we as well pray for Poland. We pray for Rafa, and we pray for Przemek. We pray for Pastor Bekesha and Pastor David in, uh, in uh, Wrocław. We pray that you would empower them to present your gospel to every man, woman, and child in this nation that needs Jesus so desperately. Lord, we pray that you would build your church and the gates of hell would not prevail against it. And Lord, I pray that you would give Renovation Church an ever-increasing burden to give and love and serve and pray for things beyond its community to the ends of the earth. Lord, give us wisdom, give us courage, and give us a deep love for your church across the world. We ask this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Thank you guys for your patience in all these things. Guys, we're going to look at Exodus chapter 33. Let's dive right into the passage this morning. Last week we saw uh, a a very uh, offensive thing take place in the eyes of God through the actions of his people. We saw the golden calf, that, that... That uh, cliche moment in real time where the people of God grew impatient and they said to Aaron, make us a God for ourselves. And so Aaron does it. He takes the silver or takes the gold off the, the earrings and the necklaces and he crafts an idol and they begin to worship it and celebrate it saying these are the gods who brought you out of Egypt. Do you remember that last week? And how the Lord is so, in His holiness, disturbed by this grotesque sin and this obvious disobedience. That He says He's going to wipe them out. And then we see Moses intercede. The in-between. And he says, no, don't do this. And, And Moses drops the name. Do you remember that? Don't forget about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He drops the names of their father, the very names that God made a promise to. That he would give them a land flowing with milk and honey. They were saved by the promise made to the names of those fathers. How many of you have ever been saved by the name of your father? I've been saved by the name of my father. Doing 47 in the village of Liverpool at the age of 16. Without my seatbelt on or my license in my pocket and i couldn't even be driving after 9 and it's 902 i just had to say the words i'm mike mazey and he said do you know the meat store and i was able to drive home without a ticket <laughs> that was not the first that wasn't that was the first time but it was not the last time i was saved by the name of my father and so we see here that god's grace and mercy promised to their forefathers was the basis for them not to be destroyed. And now we turn and we wonder, where do we go from here? The Lord sends a plague to his people at the end of 32, and we pick up the story in verse 1 of chapter 33. Listen to what he says. I'm only going to read the first six verses, and then we're going to talk some. The Lord said to Moses, Depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt. To the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, To your offspring I will give it. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey. But I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff necked people. When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned. And no one put on his ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, say to the people of Israel, you are a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So now, take off your ornaments, that I may know what to do with you. Therefore, the people of Israel strip themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward I think it's cliche to say that opposites attract right like uh, I think of how Doreen and I somehow found one another we're getting back to the grace of God in my life I guess but how did we how did we of all people come to be in relationship to one another Right? I was the guy that went ridiculous amounts of mousse in his hair. Some of you are thinking, yeah, that is you. Uh, that ref- can't handle one little hair out of place or something's wrong. And, you know, Doreen used to be like, what's up with that? Like, so she used to come up behind me in school and ruffle my hair. And it would frustrate the living daylights out of me. And, you know, I always tuck my shirt in, right, because trying to protrude like I'm together or something. But Doreen looked past that. She knew I was a complete mess. And so she would pull this shirt out. At Faith Heritage, you had to tuck in your shirt, right? And I love that about Faith Heritage. Hey, buddy, you better tuck in your shirt. Love that rule. So she would come up behind me in the hall and just pull my shirt out and walk away. So we we're very different. I wanted to put a ton of moose in my hair. I wanted to tuck in my shirt. And she wanted it to get all messed up, right? So she was a real sweet-spoken, soft you know, personality, real sweet, and I was a little bit harsh, a little bit direct, uh, a little bit angry at times, you know, aggressive at times, and so we were very different, and yet somehow those differences, at least in human relationships, seem to complement one another well, right? They attract, they come together. But we see here that that is not the case when it comes to divine relationships. Yes, in the Trinity, we see three distinct persons that complement one another. But we do not see opposites attracting, do we? Divine relationships, that's not how they work. The Lord is not attracted to the one who is different from Him. The Lord is not drawn to, in His holiness, human sin. As a matter of fact, it's quite the opposite. We see here... That he is repulsed by it. He tells the people, go to Canaan. Go to that land that I promised you. And maybe in the moment, the people think to themselves, whew, we made it. All is well. Yeah, some people died by the sword, and the plague was definitely annoying, and we're kind of recovering from that. Whatever that was, we don't know. But we see that they may begin to think, okay, we made it. Now we can go forward. Yay, we're going to the promised land. But we see the tragic news that they hear. You're going to Canaan, but guess what? I'm not going with you. Because if I go with you, I'm going to consume you. If I was with you for just a moment, just a blink of the eye, My holiness that cannot tolerate your sin will consume you. You see, those found in sin are repulsive to the presence of the holy God. That's what we see here. We saw it in the last chapter. We see it here today that sin is a major deal. It's not a small thing. And God in his holiness simply will not tolerate human sin. That sin puts us at enmity with God. That now we are separated from him. There's no peace. There is only hostility when sin stands between us and the presence of a holy God. And the presence of a holy God is repulsed by our sin. Not attracted to it. He says, I'm not going with you. What a tragic Tragic, devastating word that they've heard. The text calls it a disastrous word. For God to not be with his people. For God to not go amongst his people all the way to Canaan was a devastating word. A disastrous word for the people of God. How they had been redeemed out of Egypt. How they had made it thus far. The thing that had guided them and protected them along the way was nothing less than the presence of God among them. And now they were told to go, but they were not going to have that presence with them. A disastrous word. And you can't help but see the irony of what's taken place. The irony of sin. The irony of idolatry. And I think we always find ourselves, at least often find ourselves, duped by similar things. Prone to wander ourselves. Right? That When we crave closeness to God, right? We we want to be near to God. We want to see God. We want to hold God in our hands. And so, we, because we want to be near to God, and we want God to be present with us, and yet at the same time, he seems to be so far from us, absent from our midst, so what do we do? We make a God of our own. In an effort to see God, in an effort to be near to God, in an effort to have the presence of God amongst us, we make our own God to have and to hold in our own image. That's what you see the people doing, right? Where is Moses? Where is this God? Let's make another one that will go with us. And so we see that the irony of this is that they chased idolatry in their sin. They were longing to have God near to them, making a God of their own. But the irony of it is this, that the very thing that they sought after in idolatry was the very thing that they lost. And that's the nature of sin. That's the nature of idolatry. You see, we want something. We want to be near to God. We want to see God. We want to have this connection with God that we can understand and grapple with. And so we make a God of our own, but at the end of the day, we see that we've lost the very thing that we've sought after. That God is no longer with them. He's not going. They're going at it alone. We think of that through the eyes of an experience of the adulterer, right? Isn't that the irony? Like the 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 person who is prone to getting involved in adulterous relationships is one that really is seeking intimacy. That's craving connection, pleasure, satisfaction, joy by connecting with someone that is pleasing to his or her eyes. That gives them which seems to be satisfaction. And so they begin to pursue this intimacy with someone who is not their spouse. And what they find is anything but intimacy. What they find is the opposite, complete discord and disconnection. See, the very thing they were seeking after is the very thing that they had lost. How about the one that is seeking affirmation? Right, You know these people, people who are constantly looking to impress someone else. To have the favor and the approval of men. And so they run after this and they find themselves being rejected by other people all the time. That no matter how good they do, no matter how great their performance, people are never truly satisfied with them. Maybe that's you. You're living a life where you're seeking approval, but you find yourselves completely without it. Or maybe the person that, so wants to gain control of their lives. And so they spend their hours scheduling, making lists, ironing shirts, putting moose in their hair, seeing a pattern. But the more they try to gain control of their lives, guess what they find? It's a complete disaster. You see, these are idols. And when we pursue those things apart from God, apart from the way that he's revealed, and we run after them in the form of an idol or any other way apart from the way he's revealed, we find ourselves losing the very thing that we've sought after. So these people have this disastrous word. The Lord is repulsed by their sin. They're going, but he's not going with them. And then we see the response of the people when they hear this. The text says that they mourned. You see, the previous chapter, they're celebrating their sin. Yay, these are our gods. And now, when they hear this disastrous word, there's something going inside their hearts that they begin to mourn. They're sorrowful, deeply sorrowful at their sin. And the text goes on to say that they removed their ornaments. The Lord told them, take them off. Take them off. That is, in many ways, you are a people hearing this consequence of sin. The fact that I'm very repulsed by this activity and this behavior. When you hear this, you're beginning to respond like as if we're in the midst of a funeral. This is a, a time to mourn. Really, not just feel sorry for yourselves, about this but we're seeing that that in many ways these people are beginning to respond to their sin with an attitude of repentance right repentance is the response that we should have in response to the repulsion of god to our sin right is it's a big deal sin it's not what we typically do to marginalize our sin to minimize it to say it's not that big of a deal Everybody does it. We're all in the same boat. But it's the response that recognizes that sin is a big deal. And I want each and every one of us to think through that to this degree today. That the sins we continue to struggle with, the refusal in our heart to turn from them, the idols that we continue to worship, the ways that we worship God that are inconsistent with the ways that he's revealed to us, These things are major deals. They're not small things to be considered lightly. And I was confronted with the fact that that I don't mourn the way I should mourn over my sin, my continued inconsistency with the character of Christ. Uh, To be fair, it doesn't really bother me. Do you feel that at times? Do you feel as though your sin... Whatever. Are you broken? Are you contrite? Right, a broken spirit and a contrite heart. He will not despise. Right, The Lord is not repulsed by the broken spirit, the contrite heart. That comes to grips with sin. Calls it what it is. Recognizes the weight of it and the gravity of it. Comes before God in humility and brokenness. Who mourns and says, this is literally a funeral in relationship to you. The Lord is repulsed by those who are found in sin. He does not want to be near to it. He is not attracted to it, and therefore the consequence is laid out. The Lord will not go with them, and appropriately so, the people mourn. But the passage goes on, verse 7. We see that in although the people hear this tragic consequence, that God is still revealing himself personally to one man. Right? Look at what... Verse 7 says, Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp. And he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. Whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up and each would stand at his tent door and watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. And when Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend. And stand at the entrance to the tent. And the Lord would speak to Moses. And when all the people saw the pillar of cloud. Standing at the entrance of the tent. All the people would rise up and worship. Each at his tent door. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses. Face to face. As a man speaks to his friend. When Moses turned again into the camp. His assistant. Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. See, there's been a change, right? That we haven't taken a look at this particular section yet in Exodus. We'll be doing that in a couple weeks. But there's this whole section devoted to the details of the the, the tabernacle, right? And the tabernacle was going to be placed in the midst of the people. And the, the camp would be all around the tabernacle showing that the Lord was in the presence of his people. The Lord's presence was in the midst of his people, right? But now we see a change where now that there's a tent of meeting outside the camp. The Lord is no longer in the midst of, but really the Lord's servant, the people's representative would go out to this tent of meeting and would go in. And then the presence of the Lord would descend upon it. And the Lord is continuing to reveal himself to this in-between, this intercessor. And that the text says that he continues to speak to Moses face to face as a man would speak to his friend. And I love the image because, you know, you would think that uh, these people uh, would be kind of, repulsed by holiness, like scared to death, don't want to go anywhere near it. And I think that's somewhat true. But you've got to love the shift that's taking place in the lives of these people, right? That, that now, having mourned over their sin and have taken off the ornaments and now watching the, the presence of God come down and set on the tent and Moses to go in, and there's this interaction between Moses and the Lord, they, they come out and they stand at their own tent and they watch from a distance and they you wonder if they long for that kind of interaction you wonder if they long for the presence of God the voice of God the relationship that Moses has with the Lord but yet far off in the distance you see God is making his tent far off from the camp and he is distancing himself from his people, but yet in such a way that they continue to see and look from a distance. And I can't help but wonder if something is welling up inside each and every one of them, that the very thing that would consume them is now the very thing that they long for. The voice of God. The presence of God. In that distance, they see that their sin is the issue. They continue to seek the Lord. They continue to worship the Lord. And then you would wonder, do you think Moses is content in this moment? Is Moses content to just talk to God in the tent, experience the presence of God, keep the people where they belong so nobody dies? I mean, to some degree, nobody should be wanting to push the envelope right now, right? Like, we made it through. God's keeping a gracious distance from us so that we don't die. Let's just keep things the way they are, and let's just make progress toward the promised land. God is close enough to get us where we need to go, but that's good enough. But we see that the exact opposite happens. That something uh, is going on As Moses continues to talk to the Lord face to face like a friend. That that some satisfaction is still unmet. Some joy, some desire is still uh, needing to be attained. And we see that shift take place in verses 12. I'm going to finish reading here and try to finish up as fast as I can here. Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, Bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Please, so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other tribe on the face of the earth? The Lord said to Moses, This very thing you have spoken I will do. For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. And Moses said, Please, show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, And will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face. For man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock. And I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand. And you shall see my back. But my face shall not be seen. On five occasions in that section, we see this language of finding favor in the sight of the Lord. You see, we have these people, right? The Israelites as a nation who've been found in sin. And when those who are found in sin, they find the fact that God is repulsed by it. He wants nothing to do with it. He can't be near it. But then we see Moses in the sovereignty of God. For whatever reason, Moses is the one he's chosen to show his favor to. It says he's found favor in his sight, right? And, 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 and he's speaking to God as a man speaks to his friend. He's found favor in his sight. Moses is no less sinful than any of them. Moses is not better than Israel. The only difference, really, between Moses and Israel is simply the fact that he has found favor in the sight of the Lord, that God has chosen to continue to reveal himself and speak to Moses. And as Moses interacts with this gracious God, the the presence of this holy yet gracious God, you see what happens to him, that he wants to know the Lord more. Right, that request, if, if I found favor in your sight, you said I found favor in your sight. If that's the case, if, you, if I found favor in your sight and you know me by name, can I know you more? Can I understand who you are to a greater degree? My heart has tasted it has seen that you are good, and I want more of you. And then when we think that this is simply a personal request, we see that he continues to be the in-between. Consider, too, that these people, this nation, are your people. He's representing the people. He's crying out on behalf of the people. If I found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways so that I might know you. He wants to know God. And he's representing the desire and the need of the people to know God more. That's what his heart desires. Those who find the Lord's favor are attracted to an ever-increasing knowledge and nearness to him. That's what we see taking place here. The Lord is repulsed by human sin, but those who find the Lord's favor, even in the midst of that sin, are attracted to an ever-increasing more, and ever-increasing knowledge of who He is and closeness to Him, His presence. And I couldn't help but look at that and say, you know, is that really the desire of my heart? And I can't help but ask and throw that out to you. He is bold in this request. Again, the Lord had just said, I'm going to wipe out these people in my holiness. And now Moses, overcoming the fear of holiness, placing a stake in the ground on the basis of divine grace and favor, is saying, look at I know that, that your presence is going to consume us, but, but I'm attracted to it. I want it. I want to know you. And I wonder if you find yourself truthfully in that place today. Do you want to know God? You say, yeah, well, I read about theology. I, I study. I want to know God. Now, I'm not saying know about him. I'm not saying have a perfect working theology. Embrace theology. Go for it. I'm in. Please don't mishear me. I'm talking about the knowledge of God. Relationally. Connection. Knowing not just about Him, but knowing who He is. His essence. His name. You want to know Him. Or do you just like knowing things about Him? Do you find yourself drawn to time with God in the Scriptures? Do you find yourself increasingly saying, you know what, I'm going to spend time in prayer. I'm going to seek the Lord. Or do you find yourselves all too often too busy, uninterested, flipping on Netflix and Hulu with time that's given to you? And then coming to grips with the fact that all too often we're just simply too, quote, unquote, busy for God. Do you want to know God? If you've tasted and you've seen, if you found favor in the sight of God, I think that's what happens. You want more. And that's the beauty of God. We can receive God, but he's so inexhaustible and infinite that we can continue to receive more of him. We can have all of him and at the same time have more of him. And that's what Moses is experiencing. And that's what he wants. But before some of you say, yeah, the heck with theology, understand this, that he says, show me now your ways. That if you want to know God, it's the pursuit of how he has revealed himself in Scripture. So often we say, oh, I want to know God. i got to get away and have these goosebumps, emotional experiences, and then I'll really feel the presence of God. Some of you may have had that. I don't want to dispel those moments, but understand this, that it is as we engage God in his revealed Word is when we get to know God. It's the Scripture's. Not just goosebump moments, but truly knowing him as he has revealed himself in the scriptures. And then you see the response, which we're shocked by. It looks like a concession. I said I wasn't going to go with you. And now the Lord reassures Moses and the people, I will go. I'm going to go. And we see that that God continues to respond To the intercessor, the one who represents the people and begs and says, God, I know your holiness, but on the basis of your favor, on the basis of your promise, will you please go with us? And the Lord says, yes, I will. I'll go with you. I'll give you rest. And Moses says, good, because if you don't go, the very thing that distinguishes us from the rest of the world would have been lost. What's so different about us in the world? Quote, unquote. Nothing. You know, the church has often postured itself as kind of arrogant and proud. and We know better. We live better. And you people are really bad. And we get out our megaphones and we just scream at people about their sin. Thus projecting some we've made it, we're perfect, we know better than you do kind of attitude towards the world. That doesn't go very far. That doesn't really distinguish us. We say, well, we go to church every Sunday, we go to Bible study too, and we don't engage in those activities, we don't go to those places, and we vote for those Republicans, and that's what makes us who we are. As if the thing that distinguishes us from the world is just a couple of we don't do this and we do do that and that's it. Everyone want to receive that gospel? Please someone say no. No, that is not what distinguishes us from the world. The only difference between us and the world, at least foundationally, is the presence of God in us. That's it. And so when we know that, we realize, man, this is a posture of humility to the world. Not arrogance. We've got it backwards. You know the difference between me and who knows Jesus and someone who doesn't know Jesus? It's nothing special about me. No greater sense of knowledge and enlightenment and arrival than somebody. No. It's simply that the Spirit of God, the same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, Decided in his grace and favor to take residence in my life. And that's the same for you. Divine distinction comes from divine presence. So if Moses and the people were to embark on the journey without the presence of God, there would be no distinction, no protection, nothing different. They would be like Canaan. They would be like the culture around them. They would be no different. And so for God's purposes, God's mission to be effective and fulfilled through these people, the presence of God was absolutely necessary. To the extent that Moses is saying, look, it, if you're not going to go with us, we're not, there's no point in us going. Please don't send us. It's like what Jesus said, right? When he's like to the disciples, look it, I'm going. Don't go anywhere till the spirit comes. Like, don't do anything. Hide in a room, because without the Spirit, these people are incapable. They're going to make a mess out of mission, <laughs> a total disaster of God's name. <laughs> so please, go hide in a closet. Don't talk to anybody. Just pray. But when the Spirit comes, then start doing things, because that's what distinguishes us. That's what empowers us. That's what where the rubber meets the road in Christian living. We're distinct on the basis of God's presence among us. God goes forward and he says, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do. You have found favor in my sight. I will provide my presence. See, the Lord is providing that which Moses is requesting. But it's all on the basis of grace, right? It's all on the basis of grace, and we see that this presence is the very thing that distinguishes them from all other people on the face of the earth. And so we get back to asking the question, how is God going to make the gospel known in North Syracuse, in Baldwinsville, right? It's through his spirit-empowered, word-proclaiming people, right? To, to, to know him is to have his presence And to have his presence is to make him known. And so I ask the question, are you living in submission and awareness to this presence of God in your life in such a way that you're growing in the knowledge of him and also growing in making him known in the midst of this world? It's a very important question from this text and considering our heart for these suburbs. Let me also make another statement. If you're doing it on your own strength, apart from the work of God's Spirit, you will fail miserably. You fail miserably. I can say that from experience, not just from the text. The text tells me what my experiences are. That when we do things on our own strength, our own merit, when we give it all we've got, we find ourselves no different. Than anybody else in the world. But when the Spirit of God enters in, right? When the presence of God is with us and among us, that's when the distinction is seen. I think this calls all of us to a deeper reliance and dependence on the presence of God and awareness of it, seeking God in the scriptures, and awareness of God by His Spirit. And so we see that Moses asked in another way, show me your glory. And the glory is his goodness. It's the proclamation of his name, his essence. I will show grace to whom I will show grace and mercy to whom I will show mercy. And so the Lord in his grace and mercy is deciding to proclaim his name and his goodness to Moses. But again, he continues to keep a distance, doesn't he? Look, when I pass by, I'm going to cover you. You will not see my face. I will pass by. I'll put my hand over you. You'll be in the cleft of the rock. And I will protect you from my holiness that would consume you. Because if you saw my face, you would die. So again, we see this paradox of this holy God that would consume sinful human, and yet this gracious God that wants to be known, right? We want to know God, and yet God at the same time wants to be known. I want that to set in. God wants to be known, but He has to do so in a way that would not destroy us on the basis of our sin. So He covers, says He's going to cover Moses. And that Moses would see his back, but his face would not be seen. See, I can't help but think about this idea that that God is repulsed by sin. And I wonder if some of us here today are wondering, is God repulsed by me? Does God want to be near to me? Right? I think that's sometimes how, how does God view me? And I think the reality that we come face to face with is that without Christ, the answer to that question is yes. That without the in-between, without the one whose finished work literally covers us, that the holiness of God would consume us. And I love really what this foreshadows in many ways that that Jesus, the Son of God, would indeed come into the world to be with us, to be amongst us, and to eventually die in our place. And I'll never forget like this moment where Jesus is on the cross and he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you turned your back on me? Where is your presence with me? And the very thing that That really was what Jesus treasured the most. Presence of his father was gone. That now Jesus finds himself outside the camp. Not in the presence of God. Not in the presence of his father. Feeling the full consequence of sin upon his shoulders. And that in this moment Jesus is taking the penalty of our sin what it deserves. And so that those who embrace him by faith would be covered, and that those who embrace him by faith, that Jesus would have taken all that repulsion, if you will, to our sin upon his shoulders. And so that when we embrace him by faith, when we see his finished work, that it is sufficient, That it has covered us. It has achieved our forgiveness. That when we grab on tight to him, we can turn away from our sin. And we can turn to the living God. And we can turn to Jesus and say, there's his glory. We asked, show me your glory. And God said, here it is. It's on the cross. There's my glory. And there's my provision for you to be restored back into relationship with me. So that we can have a relationship Of draw near to me and I will draw near to you. And so that you can taste and see that I am good. And so that you can join in with Paul who says, I want to know him more. I want to know Christ in in his resurrection. That I've counted all things as lost with the surpassing value of knowing Jesus Christ as Lord. This ever increasing knowledge and nearness to God. You see, because of Jesus, we can be knowing God. And we can be near to him. In one day, as 1 John 3 says, guess what? We will see him face to face. Amen? And we will not be consumed because of Jesus. We will be changed, though. The text says, when we see him, what? We become like him. That's what knowing him really is. That's what nearness to him accomplishes. It deals with our sin. It kills sin in us. And it eventually conforms us to the image of Jesus. We become like him. Praise God that In his repulsion to our sin, he did what was necessary to deal with our sin so that we might now be in his favor and be ever more attracted to an ever increasing knowledge of and nearness to who he is. Don't leave today, please, without asking God to show me Jesus, show me your glory, let me see your ways. Don't leave today without repenting and turning from your sin and turning to God. Through Christ, by faith, you will be received by him, not destroyed. Amen? Amen. Guys, we're going to invite the band to come forward. We're going to respond to this word. We're going to participate in communion. We're going to celebrate the Lord's perfect sacrifice and death. We're also going to give you opportunity to pray if there's sin in your life that you need prayer for, situation in your life that you need care. I'll be available in the back. We're going to respond by taking uh, what God has given to us and saying, you know what? On the basis of your grace in my life, I'm responding with generosity. You've been generous to me, Lord. I want to... Be generous to others, right? The presence of God that is in me is welling up inside of me, something distinct, something that's different. I want to give. I want to share, just like God does. And so now I'm gonna invite you to stand. We're going to enter into a time of response. When you're ready, you can come forward and receive from the table his body being symbolized in the bread and his blood in the cup and celebrate Christ, pray to him, sing to him, and give out of what he has given to you. Let's pray. Father, there's so much here. We come before you with a simple and yet profound request. Show me now your ways that we might know you. Show us your glory in Christ, Lord. Thank you that your presence goes with us and that you have and will continue to give us rest. We celebrate you today. In Jesus' name.